0: Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Tuesday, April 27th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 45. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FAM Taught Me, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness information on my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and follow me on Instagram at FAM Me to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations, and I'd love to connect with you. I'm also excited to announce my new book, Fertility Awareness Through the Five Senses, so I invite you to check it out on my site, where you can order this book and all of my other resources directly. I've wanted to make this episode on the history of the pill for a long time because of my own experiences using oral contraceptives. It was the first time that I realized that my personal experience could clash with feminist narratives of progress and liberation. As it was for me on an individual scale, the history of how birth control was made possible is also rife with contradictions, including its advent as a tool of population control. Ultimately, these drugs were developed by men to answer social problems, not by women to be liberated from unexpected and unwanted pregnancy. Though much of the fight to keep our right to access contraception has been advanced by women, the whole development process of the pill was largely out of our hands. And like the first people who took the pill in the 60s, I too was not aware of the side effects I would endure, or how life-changing they would actually be. Some say that certain women had to sacrifice their own fertility through experimental medical practices so that we could have reproductive freedom, but I see that there's a big problem with this framing because a sacrifice is made by a consenting party for the betterment of a larger cause, not by those who could not consent. The history of the birth control pill confronts a lot of different themes around reproductive justice, including medical exploitation, informed consent, medical racism, and gynecological experimentation. It ties in directly with the history of forced sterilization, the myth of overpopulation, and the concept of the body becoming a political signifier for class relations. In particular, we must frame any discussion on the history of the pill through a colonial history, where black people and other groups were considered hypersexual, immoral, promiscuous, and vectors for disease, and therefore in need of forced or coerced population control. This, of course, has resulted in a modern suspicion of biomedicine by these groups, and with good reason. When we think about these histories, they stretch beyond the concept of the pill. Whether it's Fannie Lou Hamer who experienced involuntary sterilization, terming it a Mississippi appendectomy, or Zimbabwean women forced to take Depo-Provera or lose their jobs, or the various family planning programs deployed in apartheid South Africa, the explicit racism of Margaret Sanger, or the experimentation on Puerto Rican and disabled women that ultimately paved the way for FDA approval of the pill. Every step of the way, there has been exploitation, and that's what this episode is going to discuss. Barely 100 years had passed since scientists first learned that conception occurs from a sperm entering a female egg, instead of the idea that women were just the soil and that the man was fully responsible for the genetic material. And scientists were already on a quest to shut down the process without any knowledge of the benefits of consistent ovulation throughout reproductive life. The late 19th and early 20th century frames our understanding of how modern contraception was developed. For a history of earlier forms of contraception, please listen to episode 42, The History of Autonomous Fertility Control. Hormones as we know them today were only discovered in 1890, when Viennese gynecologist Emile Nauer found the existence of these chemicals, and years later, they were named after the Greek word hormau, which means to stir up or incite. The Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, was established in 1906. By the early 19-teens, Margaret Sanger, a nurse working in the Lower East Side of New York, hoped to create a magic pill like an aspirin that could work as a contraceptive. She began writing in her journal called The Woman Rebel, where she coined the term birth control, and wrote that women should avoid pregnancy if they are ill or living in poverty, but does not give any specific contraceptive method advice. The New York City Postmaster banned the journal under the Comstock laws. She is indicted shortly after and flees to England before returning the following year to face charges, which are then dropped. She opened the first birth control clinic in America in Brooklyn and is shut down after 10 days, with all condoms and diaphragms being seized by the state. Shortly after, Sanger met Catherine McCormick. More on her later, but essentially McCormick started funding Sanger's movement— and Sanger established the American Birth Control League, the precursor to Planned Parent Federation of America, in 1921. In the 1920s, scientists in Japan and Austria both independently concluded that women are fertile midway through their menstrual cycle, which establishes the basis for the rhythm method, as well as discoveries that the pituitary gland functions as the remote control system for human reproduction, and that progesterone is an ovarian hormone that plays a crucial role in preparing for and sustaining pregnancy. Now let's talk about the quote-unquote pioneers. The inventors of birth control are often referred to as the pioneers, a colonial word that is fitting because the quest for discovery, notoriety, fame, and of course fortune was more important than the exploitation it took to get there. The men who invented the pill were both at some point, Professors at Harvard, John C. Rock and Gregory G. Pincus. Starting with Pincus, he was purely interested in the science, not the social implications of the science. This made him aloof to the medical ethics of his work, which shows in the breaches he constantly made throughout his career. He studied for his doctorate at Harvard and was hired as an assistant professor. During this time, he gained notoriety for his claims of achieving in vitro fertilization of rabbits This was vilified in the national press for tampering with the mechanisms of life, and comparisons were made to Huxley's Brave New World, a book that contained the idea for an artificial womb. Harvard took note of this bad press. They decided not to give Pincus tenure, possibly under anti-Semitic grounds, so he left the institution. In 1941, chemistry professor Russell Marker discovered that Mexican wild yams contained hormones, and that a synthetic progestin could be produced from it. This changed hormone manufacturing and incentivized the development of new drugs for profit. Pincus founded the Worcester Institute for Experimental Biology in 1944 and worked closely with the G.D. Searle Pharmaceutical Company, including purchasing stock shares of Searle. Searle was acquired by Monsanto and eventually Pfizer, where it remains a subsidiary, though its trade name has been retired. Around the same time, a Harvard endocrinologist named Fuller Albright wrote a report that analyzed serious menstrual disorders, in which he discussed that preventing ovulation prevents pregnancy, exploring the possibility of birth control via hormone therapy. Pincus prioritized expediency in the race to develop these new drugs. The medical ethics were not even in consideration. John Rock, on the other hand, wanted to use science to answer social problems. He graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1918 and continued to work at Harvard in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. He would remain as clinical professor of gynecology for over 30 years. In the 1920s, he was particularly interested in infertility, helping revive the Massachusetts General Hospital's infertility clinic, and then starting his own infertility clinic called the Free Hospital for Women, which is now a part of the Boston Hospital for Women and Brigham and Women's. The free hospital was a teaching hospital, giving Harvard Associated Physicians increased access to patients there. Like other teaching hospitals, the poor and disabled were among its most frequented patients. Rock began testing combinations of synthetic hormones on his low-income patients. After encountering synthetic versions of estrogen and progesterone, he tested their use on infertile patients at dangerously high doses— When 13 of 80 of his subjects became pregnant, he was encouraged by the results. He had also become interested in the issue of overpopulation, which connects this podcast to episode 42, The History of Autonomous Fertility Control. In it, I briefly touched on population control and eugenics philosophy that stemmed from 19th century racism, which purported fear about the rising public welfare and social conditions. These improvements meant that working-class non-white families were growing larger and this threatened white European political and economic dominance. This developed into the 20th century with figures like Margaret Sanger and Hugh Moore's popular pamphlet, The Population Bomb, which focused on restricting fertility for certain populations, both in the U.S. and around the world. Moore helped fund Sanger's International Planned Parenthood Foundation and organizations such as John D. Rockefeller's Population Council, which all included eugenicist thought, including a favorable opinion of forced sterilization. And of course, coming out of the World War II era, the Nazis were well known for their use of forced sterilization practices, which predicated the development of international law. So this is the context in which John Rock was becoming interested in ideas around what we now know is the myth of overpopulation and what should be done about it. His quest to address overpopulation had to be reconciled with his Catholicism, which strictly forbids the use of contraception, and also the ethics of working with unconsenting research subjects. Meanwhile, Gregory Pincus had been introduced to Catherine D. McCormick of the famous and wealthy McCormick family, who made their fortune from the invention of a mechanized reaper which changed the way agriculture was performed. After her mother and husband passed away, she inherited a sizable fortune, totaling $35 million. Margaret Sanger introduced McCormick to Pincus, and soon after, McCormick began funding Pincus' research annually, between $100,000 and $180,000 per year, totaling about $2 million, or $20 million in today's terms, until her death in 1967. After John Rock's free hospital trials had ended in failure, Catherine McCormick sent a letter to Margaret Sanger saying she wanted, quote, a cage of ovulating females to experiment with. Rock and Pincus had known of each other since the 1930s, but did not reconnect until 1952 at an academic conference, where Rock learned of Pincus' anti-ovulation trials in rabbits, using the same drugs he himself had used to try and cure infertility. They decided to work together on a larger trial with 60 patients from the free hospital, and other related clinics, with the goal of understanding progesterone's effect on the menstrual cycle. Women who did not become pregnant were dissatisfied with these side effects and half of them dropped the trial. Pincus had encouraged Rock to administer the drugs for 21 days, followed by a 7-day break to allow for menstruation to occur. Their reasoning was that the pill was controversial, and they needed to mimic natural processes, so the drugs would be well accepted by the public. The result of the trial was conclusive, None of the women using the drugs ovulated. He learned he would need more experimental control to understand the ovulatory suppression effects of progestins, or synthetic progesterone, which led him to take on unethical forms of experimentation. The G.D. Searle company had been testing hundreds of combinations of steroid drugs in animals and had identified a drug that had potential to work in human beings. However, Pincus wanted to conduct experiments on his own first. Now earlier in life, McCormick had established the Neuroendocrine Research Foundation at Harvard Medical School, and because Harvard had an existing arrangement with the Worcester State Hospital, the foundation had already been conducting experiments on mentally disabled patients for years. So in 1954, Pincus used 16 female patients at the Worcester State Hospital to test birth control pill prototypes, and then cut into their uteruses to learn more about the drug's effect on ovulation with G.D. Searle providing the pills for the trial. Then he published his findings in the respected medical journal The Lancet, claiming that he wanted to understand the, quote, possible tranquilizing effect of the pill. Many people have made excuses for Pincus' experimentation in the years since birth control became popularized, that things were just different in those times regarding informed consent. However, this is more of a revisionist narrative than anything else. Other doctors were displeased with the methodology of the 1950s study, including one doctor who wrote to the Lancet editors, quote, This use as guinea pigs of chronic psychotic patients who are not able to give or withhold valid permission in physiological research of this type must be as repugnant to many of your readers as it is to me. Even G.D. Searle Corporation's medical director was concerned with Pincus's lack of ethics, sending a letter to John Rock stating that, quote, We here have been disturbed by the casualness with which materials pass from Pincus' animals to your patients. Ignoring the critics, Pincus continued to experiment on the mentally disabled at the Worcester State Hospital, including a 1956 experiment where he performed testicular biopsies on 20 schizophrenic men without anesthetic to test for, quote, castration anxiety. As side effects were reported by the female patients in his trials, he continued to deny them, stating to the New York Times years later that, quote, these side effects are largely psychogenic. Most of them happen because women expect them. The Nuremberg Code of 1947 establishes the importance of informed consent, but this was not legally binding, and this allowed for continued exploitation of research subjects. An excellent book about this subject is Harriet Washington's Medical Apartheid. In 1956, Rock chose G.D. Searle's drug formulation called Enovid over a Mexican company Syntex's version of a progestin and submitted it for FDA approval in the U.S. FDA approval requires large-scale human studies. Now we'll turn to Puerto Rico, where the heart of contraceptive drug trials took place. The reason for choosing Puerto Rico was multifold. The laws around medicine were less restrictive. There was already an established clinical network teaching family planning since the 1930s, and it was the target of racial hatred with its primarily non-white population. This also paved the way for forced sterilization on the island, and by 1955, 16.5% of women of childbearing age had been sterilized, many of whom had no idea what had happened to them. This is outlined in the film La Operación, a documentary by Ana Maria Garcia, which was released in 1982. It consists of interviews from women who underwent the procedure. Even the governor of Puerto Rico was complicit in these sterilizations, writing to Margaret Sanger in 1933 that, quote, The tragedy of the situation is that the more intelligent classes voluntarily restrict their birth rate, while the most vicious, most ignorant, and most helpless and hopeless part of the population multiplies with tremendous rapidity. In the mainland U.S., all contraceptive information and materials, such as condoms, diaphragms, spermicides, and jellies, were banned until the 1970s. The only reason Rock and Pincus had been able to conduct their earlier trials was by framing their research around infertility and the menstrual cycle. With Puerto Rico's colonial status to the U.S., it gave these men the ability to conduct a study they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. With their funding backed by eugenicists interested in population control, coupled with the lack of restrictive laws, they started their first trial with 20 female University of Puerto Rico medical students in 1955. Over half the participants dropped out, which is unsurprising considering the time involved and the pain endured. The participants had been instructed to take their temperature and a vaginal smear daily. Each month, their cervixes were dilated and uterine tissues collected. And some of them had laparotomies, where a large incision was made to expose the abdominal cavity so researchers could look at their ovaries. They decided to leave the medical students in favor of a field trial for what would become Enovid, the first contraceptive pill. In April of 1956, they brought the pill to the Rio Piedras neighborhood of San Juan, where there was housing development complexes built for farm laborers. The reason for choosing this area is obvious. As one researcher noted when he wrote, quote, The families selected were landless. They were to some extent social problems. This time they chose a larger sample size of 256 women. It involved no compensation, but they had no trouble finding volunteers who wanted to sign up to access a reversible form of contraception. Although the women consented to using the pills, they did not explicitly tell them they were involved in a drug trial experiment. But they ran into the same problems as a smaller study. It was hard to get women to continue using the pill, as 22% of women dropped out due to the severe side effects. Other problems included the invasiveness of the regular testing they had to undergo. Journalists who wrote in the public newspaper that they thought this may be an undercover plot to sterilize more Puerto Rican women, and the disapproval of birth control by the Catholic Church. A few of the participants even resold the pills they were given on the black market for extra funds. Rock selected a high dosage for the pill in order to be absolutely certain it would not fail to prevent pregnancy. And one year later, in the spring of 1957, Additional full-scale trials were conducted in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and Mexico City, Mexico. Data from 897 women was collected and submitted to the FDA. Once the scientists left Puerto Rico, the pills were far too expensive for women to afford, at $11 a month, leaving the participants from the trial without access to the drugs they had helped test. By the summer of 1957, The FDA approved Enovid as a treatment for severe menstrual disorders, requiring the label to carry the warning that it would prevent ovulation. G.D. Searle made $37 million annually. In less than two years following this therapeutic approval of Enovid, there was a significant uptick in women who visited their doctors with these supposed menstrual disorders, but we assume that many of them just wanted to acquire the drug for its off-label use as a contraceptive. In October of 1959, G.D. Searle filed an application with the FDA to license Enovid containing 0.15 mg mestranol, or synthetic estrogen, and 10 mg norotindril, a progestin. Enovid was the first drug in history to ever be given to a healthy person for long-term use, and on May 11, 1960, it was approved as an oral contraceptive, giving Searle a market monopoly on the product. By 1961, the age of faith in wonder drugs quickly faded when it hit the news that European women had been given thalidomide to control morning sickness, and that they gave birth to babies with severe birth deformities, ushering in questions about the safety of FDA-approved drugs. By 1962, over a million women were using the pill, and competitor Syntex received FDA approval under the trade name OrthoNovum, Serious side effects such as blood clots and heart attacks began to surface, including 11 deaths, but the company declared there was no conclusive evidence demonstrating that blood clots are a direct result of the pill. The 1960s continued to see increased use of the pill, and another drug company, Park Davis, was able to sell its version. Lyndon B. Johnson pushed for legislation for federal support of birth control for the poor, but remnants of the earlier restrictions to birth control, called the Comstock Laws, continued prohibition of birth control sales in eight states. The famous case Griswold v. Connecticut went to the Supreme Court in 1965, where the court struck down the Connecticut law prohibiting the use of birth control as a violation of a couple's right to privacy. By then, the pill was being taken by over 6 million people, with Searle seeing $89 million in sales of Enovid and that number doubled the following year to 12 million worldwide. In 1969, medical journalist Barbara Seaman published her book The Doctor's Case Against the Pill, bringing national attention to the dangerous side effects that have been accruing for almost a decade. Seaman's aunt had died from using Premarin, a drug whose active ingredient was also estrogen, which partially motivated her to write the book. She compiled testimony from physicians, medical researchers, and women who had used oral contraceptives to make a case against the safety of the pill and to call out the medical pharmaceutical establishment that had already made millions off of it. U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson read the book, and as he had already been conducting hearings on other areas of the pharmaceutical industry, such as antibiotics and tranquilizers, he conducted what became known as the Nelson Pill Hearings to discuss the safety of the pill. It was an unspoken fact amongst attendees that they were not measuring the benefits of the pill to the individual to the risks of the pill to the individual, but instead measuring the benefits of population control of certain groups to the risk to the individual. White women belonging to radical feminist groups sat in the audience of the hearing and disrupted it, citing that no women were being invited to testify. They erupted after one expert mentioned that, quote, Estrogen is to cancer what fertilizer is to wheat. The women shouted, why are you using women as guinea pigs? Why are you letting the drug companies murder us for their profit and convenience? Neither the physicians nor the protesters mentioned the Puerto Rican trials during this historic event. As a result of the hearings, a health warning was added to the pill, the first informational insert for any prescription drug. Users of the pill dropped by 18% following the hearings as well, and drug manufacturers were able to lower the dosage of hormones in the pill to a fraction of the original dosage without needing to conduct further trials or to go through extra red tape. The biggest impact of the Nelson pill hearings was not pill usage, but about consumer health and specifically informed consent. This also dovetailed with other self-help movements of the era that were prioritizing control over their own bodies and creating communities by and for women. In conclusion, they ended up marketing the pill as liberation and later on as a tool for reproductive health. It is important to note that these decisions were made for us, not by us. This is how our fertile bodies became something to be free from, giving them the authority to regulate and control us, and the idea that the most normal bodily function must be medicalized like a disease process to be shut down. As you can see through this history, the pill does not solely represent a forward trajectory of feminist progress, though it did undoubtedly have some positive impacts in allowing women to better negotiate their relationships and choose when to become mothers. But instead, this highlights the extreme exploitation present in gynecological care from the very beginning. This exploitation coercion and sterilization continues today, especially in the most marginalized communities. We must understand this history in order to have an accurate and balanced view of the pill as a tool, as well as the way it is presented not just for contraceptive purposes, but for seemingly managing any reproductive health issue under the sun. With the risks downplayed and the benefits overstated, we can conclude that the pill is marketed in a way that disrespects informed consent and leaves much to be desired in terms of adequate and appropriate health care. I hope you learned something from this episode, and that it can clarify some of the fascinating history about the pill's invention. I field many stories from people who menstruate about their various experiences at the doctor's office with being pushed to utilize the pill, even when they explicitly decline or say they wish to use another contraceptive option. I also work with people who have used the pill to manage their reproductive health issues and who realize that it isn't exactly doing everything that their doctor claimed it would, or that in fact it is causing them physical or mental harm that causes them to discontinue it. My hope for autonomous fertility management and body literacy is that it brings us much closer to advocating for ourselves, whether we choose to use clinical fertility interventions or not. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And you can take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review me. I'd really appreciate that because doing so helps more people find the show. This episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag famtaughtme. You can book a session with me by heading over to www.learnbodyliteracy.com or follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more. I'm excited that I now have three published books to offer, a paper charting journal, a guide to fertility awareness as contraception, and Fertility Awareness Through the Five Senses, my first teen and young adult-focused book. Your support is always appreciated and it really fuels my fire to keep going, so thanks again. This concludes episode 45 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.